Welcome to The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. We're reading through together the canon of Jack Aubrey and Stephen Matron as written by Patrick O'Brien. Glad to have you with us. Ian, can you tell us a little bit about what we finished up last week and where we're going this week? Yeah, thanks, Mike. We got to the end of Mauritius Command, a complicated story of a complex military campaign, but in the end, Jack in the role of Commodore, in command of other captains for the first time, had been successful, at least by the standards of putting British forces on Mauritius, British forces on La Réunion, not quite the dramatic victory and the glory and the baronetcy or the peerage that he might have hoped for, but still granted the plum of bringing the news home, Stephen having done really great work as an espionage agent, but pretty detached and pretty fed up with his life and I think wrestling a little bit still with his own character and his own role. But now we're at the beginning of a new story because Jack and Sophie have had their third child along with the two twin girls. They now have a boy. So this week, Mike, we're going to talk about life at home for a successful uh, financially wealthy and independent Jack Aubrey. We're going to talk about life Back in the UK for Stephen, still, I think, trying to wrestle with his potential future relationship with Diana Villiers and the prospect of yet another intelligence-led mission, a mission again far south and far east to the far side of the world, which is the novel Desolation Island. Nice. And this time, no great big reversal right as we get started here. We didn't see all of all of Jack's money sort of in his hands and then grasp taken away somehow. So O'Brien has changed on us just a little bit here. No, that's right. Everybody's as contented with life, I guess, as they were at the end of the previous novel. Jack still has his funds. Ashgrove Cottage is growing to be Ashgrove something bigger. Sophie has a third child and has her husband with her. The followers, Killick and Bondon, are at home in the Aubrey household. Seems like everything's set for calm, peaceful, domestic bliss. It really does. And, it, you know, it's so nice not to have that jarring beginning to see so many folks that we recognize and to have O'Brien back with his usual uh, sense of humor, that dry, that dry sense of humor here. He does. He, he, I think he loves playing up to the Jane Austen idea, doesn't he? Of playing all this kind of very dry um, observational humor. I was really enjoying as well reading about how the uh, the the naval characters are fitting into the Aubrey household. <laughs> We've got old sailors. They've got the bosun's mate telling the girls to toe the line. Um, we've got everybody slightly slightly too pleased with themselves. Jack's pretty sure that he's the best judge of horse flesh in the navy. Killick and Bondon are sure that they're proud horse riding noble representatives of the commander of the local sea fencibles. Um, Mrs. Williams, I think, is pleased to be able to lord over Jack the fact that he's had some kind of downfall, even though he hasn't really. He's just back into his regular role as a captain. And Sophie's got her family together. They're all they're all enjoying this sort of domestic comedy of being together in the house. Yeah, and, and that domestic comedy kind of gets front and center as as we're joining them. Um, I, I loved how in in the very first page. Jack has walked into the house. Sophie looks at him, sees Jack's beaming face and says it's, you know, she can tell as if it were written on his forehead that he's bought the horse that he coveted. <laughs> and, and we and we move right on from there. That's right. And it turns out that this, this idea of domestic bliss isn't going to be restricted just, just to Jack and Sophie. Killick's bought a bride. Now, Mike, I, I, this is a pretty unappealing idea, and I'm thinking it uh, with the social conscience of the 60s and 70s even, it can't be easy to write about the fact that <laughs> Killick's gone to market day and bought a wife. And it, it still gets played out as sort of indulgent and comic, but I guess it, it, it was part of everyday life in the 19th century, right? Oh, it, it really was. I, I was a, I kind of put off. I, I was thinking, what? And went you know, did a little research and found out it was quite common. Uh, apparently, a divorce was an extremely inexpensive thing to obtain because of all the uh, all the people you had to see, all the palms you had yeah. to cross with silver to obtain uh, the degrees that you needed. And 
that this was legal and oftentimes was done not just at the behest of a disgruntled husband, but done at the behest of, of a disgruntled wife saying, all right, I've had enough of this. And so they could, without spending much at all or anything, go to the marketplace, get sold. And the wife sometimes had a say into who the buyer was going to be. But certainly not something that with our sensibilities of the 2020s that we no. are, are at all proposing or uh, feeling comfortable with. But pretty funny as O'Brien writes it up here. And uh, you've got to hope that the lady in question is happy with <laughs> happy with her allocation to preserved Killick. I don't think he's any woman's idea of a, of a dashing bridegroom. But Jack takes it seriously. He's almost kind of like the lord of the manor. He said, well, Killick, I trust you're not rushing into matrimony without due consideration. It's a serious thing. Killick says, oh, no, I, I considered of it. Why? The best part of 20 minutes. There was three to choose on. And, and this here, and he's looking fondly at his wife, was the pick of the bunch. And Jack says, well, come on. I, now that I think about it, you had a wife in Mahon. She washed my shirts. Bigamy's against the law. <laughs> And I love this line from Killick. Well, you know, I had two, the other in Whopping Dock, but that was more in the roving, uncertificated line, if you follow me, sir. Not bought legal, the halter put into my hand. Well, says Jack, I suppose that's okay, but you have to go along to the parson first. Cut along to the rectory. Aye, aye, sir, said Killick. Rectory it is. Yeah. So we've got this, uh, you know, Ashgrove cottage. The family is growing as Killick brings home a new bride. Um... You've got Mrs. Williams, who's waiting to be attended upon by a number of physicians. Uh, we understand Stephen Matron's going to be one of them. The physicians have, have come in and they're waiting to see Mrs. Williams and they're looking around at all the expensive, you know, things that are hanging on the wall, all the building that's being done. And they're thinking, ah, yeah. you know, we have severely underpriced this. We're going to be raising our fees. And you kind of think everything is pretty heady, but but maybe not with Sophie. Maybe Sophie sees this a little bit more clearly. Yeah, I think everybody's a little bit fond of themselves and really not not really in touch with reality. I think Sophie really is. I, we saw this in the previous book. She could see straight away that Jack was unhappy. And I think she can see straight away that all of this flashing of the cash on horses and building projects isn't quite the wise and steady investment that Jack thinks it is. No. One of the things that I really liked about this opening chapter, it, it's funny, I found myself thinking, well, you know, we've heard a lot about Jack and Stephen talking about Sophie, and we hear a lot about Stephen talking to Sophie and then talking to Jack. We haven't heard very much since they got married of Jack and Sophie talking together. And actually, I was pretty much turning the page. I was rewarded with some genuine, really interesting, sincere, nice dialogue contact between Sophie and Jack as husband and wife. And Sophie really sees that Jack is being taken for a fool by some of these people. The projector who's trying to build silver mines in the backyard, the horse dealer who's taking Jack's eyes out over, you know, a relatively indifferent racing horse. And I'm going to skip ahead a little bit later. She really sees this clearly and she explains it to Stephen. She says, I'm not disloyal, not in my least most secret thought, but it breaks my heart to see him flinging his fortune to the winds, earned so hard and with such dreadful wounds, to see his dear, open, confiding, trustful nature imposed upon by card sharpers and horse racing men and projectors. It is like deceiving a child. And she goes on to say that she's reading the accounts and with so much more going out than going in, it cannot go on. I'm quite terrified. Ah. <sighs> I really feel for Sophie. She's the one in the household that sees things straight and she sees that Jack Ashore has really got his old characteristics there of being a little bit foolish and a little bit vainglorious and uh, and a bit of a spender. Yeah. It breaks my heart a little bit because I love Sophie so much that she kind of turns it back on herself. And yeah. you know, she, she goes on to tell Sophie, you know, I have an even more terrifying thought that he's not really happy on shore and that he plunges into one wild extravagant scheme after another to escape from a dull life in the country and from a dull wife too, perhaps. Oh, and you can see how that's an agonizing thing. He's away for months and years at a time. And when he comes back, uh, how can she be sure that 
he still sees her as uh, you know as as the exciting romantic life partner. Ah. <sighs> but I don't think she's completely overtaken by this. Sophie's still got a really pragmatic head on her shoulders. Mike, I really like the the dialogue between the two of them. They they go to bed and without betraying too much about the household, I'm going to say it was quite relatable to me <laughs> that Sophie's right. taking care that those last conversations before bedtime, Jack's really paying attention. So she completely, with with forethought and with intent, flings the candle down on the floor so that he doesn't fall asleep in those last moments so that she can keep Jack awake and make make to him the argument about going to see in the leopard because maybe it will help Stephen and maybe it's what he needs, but actually she's she's playing Jack Absolutely to a T. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that. You know, it's funny. Here's, here is Sophie flinging the candle over rather than putting it out to wake Jack up. I remember a dear friend of mine whose who's bride once confided that, uh, you know, sometimes he got just a bit too amorous, but she found if she just took a long time brushing her teeth, he'd, he'd just fall right off. Sleep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. There you go. And, and it's really touching when she said it's like deceiving a child. She can really see that he's getting himself into trouble. And and as these first couple of chapters unfold, Jack just can't help himself. Even though in Mauritius Command, in the previous novel, he got credit from us, I think, for all of his high intelligence and self-awareness and restraint and moderation. We've got this really generous, resourceful, grown-up Jack. He's still a teenager when he's ashore. He's got this overpriced racehorse he's got this guy kimber and the silver mining scheme and he treats it like it was his own jack's own brilliant scheme and he's super enthusiastic about it and he then gets into trouble playing a high stakes card game and not only a high stakes card game but with people who can really make or harm his future and he's gambling you know he's gambling with his career he's gambling with his kids inheritance and he's gambling with the potential future commands that he might have as well is he going to take command of the leopard or is he going to wait for the promised ethereal new-built frigate ajax and i just find myself thinking come on jack get real and if you can't get real get on a ship right right yeah yeah get back into the world where you are the man where you really know what to do almost intuitively know what to do from all your experience and it's funny because we get this this flip-flop flip-flop in these first couple of chapters at that one point you know the the leopard is available and and jack is singing its praises and asks stephen to go with him and stephen says you know my time's really not my own sorry jack i'll find you a good person i, I can't go then we're flipping back uh and, and i guess we'll get to this that jack's saying no no no, no i'm gonna wait for the ajax and at a time when Stephen actually would like to go, but on the leopard. Yeah. And, and so we're sort of, wait, 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 all this stuff happening with Jack, all this stuff happening with Stephen, which we'll get to here. And, uh, you know, we got to, hey, guys, we got to get on the ocean here. We got to get to see what's going to happen. Yeah. And where's, where's decisive Jack Aubrey? Jack Aubrey decisive at sea, flip-flopping all over the place on, on land. We even get it in the in the background music, so to speak. Jack and Stephen are wandering around Portsmouth on the, on the night where Jack goes playing cards, and we get all of these background reminders of the state of sailors ashore. There are sailors drinking and being robbed and swindled and taken advantage of. Stephen points out to Jack that he's being turned over by, or probably turned over by, these rich and influential people in the uh, in the card school. Jack says, "Oh, so you think they're sharps and I'm a flat?" And I think he's kind of right. pushing Stephen back and saying, oh, are you criticizing me? Do you think I'm kind of naive? But Stephen really is saying, yeah, Jack, you're naive. Well, and, and, you know, Jack goes on to protest a little bit more and to say, Stephen, you know, I'm not really gambling. I'm only doing things that I know a lot about. And Stephen says, yeah, like silver mining. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, about that, so. yeah. But we do get a couple of nice foreshadowings of what's coming in the story. We get the foreshadowing of Mr. Ray of the Admiralty and without spoiling anybody's future novel enjoyment, Mr. Ray's going to be around as an, as an important character for a long time. We've got several novels left in Mr. Ray and we've set out some of his character already in the position that he has and in the way he's willing to act uh, with respect to Jack. The other bit of foreshadowing that I liked in all of this, a kind of background conversation with the, with the, the, the naval personnel on shore is beginning to talk about this voyage that the leopard might have to take 
far away to Australia talking about the story of Captain Bly. And we hear about the seamanship challenges that Captain Bly faced dealing with the loss of command in remote seas, how things have worked out in Australia. And again, without too many spoilers, I think we're getting a sense of some of the perils and some of the complexities that are waiting for Jack when this voyage finally is going to get underway. Yeah. And and we get plenty of horses. So always love horses, <laughs> including one horse name that I don't know readers may go right by and not understand like I didn't, but you really helped me with this, Ian. <laughs> All right, yeah, but I, well, it depends. If you read it phonetically, Potu, but th- this was a real horse. This was a real um, Georgian era, Regency era racehorse. The name of the horse is Pot Eight O's. So it's it's a joke name. Pot and then four letter O's, it's potatoes. <laughs> and again, I think this just flies past and it's one of those things that O'Brien's placed in there. You know, why not have a reference? to a real name especially if the real name of the horse is a joke right right i love it <laughs> so the jokes are actually <laughs> fact the fiction is fact the fact is fiction and and we move on <laughs> here uh, and that's funny and it's heartwarming and and you know it's just classic o'brien but you had mentioned it at the end of mauritius command that all is not well with steven where are we finding him now that's right. Well, initially, it looks like he's in his happy place again because uh, he's conferring with learned doctors, the ones who come to treat Mrs. Williams. He's snapping up the chance of cadavers to to do to do his uh, surgical and scientific research on. He seems like he's the old Stephen cracking the really really acerbic dry jokes at the expense of all the others. But I think we learn a few things in these opening chapters that tell us that all is still not well with Stephen. He does seem to see things pretty clearly. Exactly as you said, Mike, he calls out Jack's situation and his naivety. But Diana is back on the scene. Yeah. And we we see letters arriving for Sophie to give to Stephen. And Sophie says, I wish I could take care of him, looking at the letters. Um, and Patrick O'Brien reminds us that Stephen's heart was entirely lost to Diana and reminds us of the, I think he uses his phrase, the infinite cost that his uh, Stephen's heart had overruled his head. And Sophie, and also, by the way, the folks at the Grapes in London later on in this chapter observe that Stephen's better dressed and he's got new wigs and fancier clothes. And we're sort of seeing agonizingly these signs that Stephen's building his hopes up again because Diana's in London, Diana's living in connection somehow with this American Mr. Johnston. So Stephen takes it upon himself to head into London. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because Sophie really wants to protect Stephen, yeah. it seems. Yeah. You know, is really concerned about these letters. You know, and Jack thinks about it a little bit differently. Jack's kind of saying back to Sophie, well, well he says, whereas by steady application, you might hope to persuade a parcel of pig-headed mules, nothing, no, not purchase upon purchase, would ever shift Stephen from his chosen path. But Sophie reminds Jack, Diana could, by waving her fan. Mm. And Jack says, well, you know, uh, you're right. And and he sees that Sophie's face is a little bit contorted here as she talks about Diana. And O'Brien tells us that uh, yeah. that not only does she feel indignation for Stephen and this kind of renewed complication for him, but as as O'Brien says, something of the disapproval or even jealousy of a woman with a very modest sexual impulse yeah. for one in whom it was quite the reverse. Um, and, and she's so Jack sees this on Sophie's face, but says, hey, look, I used to get in the way of this. I tried to interfere with this. Maybe I was wrong. Hey, if being with Diana could make him happy again, you know, I would bless the day, you know, it would it would be great, right? But Sophie reminds Jack, and and I love this because yeah. I think we'll hear this again later. Mm. Uh, that uh, you know, perhaps Jack wasn't wrong in doing all that. You know, after all, Sophie says about Diana, she had shown herself to be well to be what shall I say, a light woman. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and then Jack, because he's Jack ashore and he doesn't really know what he's saying and he doesn't pay much attention, says, well, you know, there are there are women for whom going to bed with a man doesn't signify. And he absolutely gets that thrown back at him. Sophie, I can almost hear the sort of cold, cutting dead tone of her voice. She says, I hope that neither Stephen nor any other man could make it clear to me 
that breaking marriage vows didn't signify. Yeah. yeah. So we've still got this difference. One of the differences, I think, in character between Jack is he's still a little bit, at least in terms of sentiment, not in terms of action. He still is a warm-blooded man, and he's been criticised by Stephen in the past for being at risk of having his head turned by a wench. And Sophie is here saying, Sophie takes the commandment very seriously. Sophie is in no way going to allow any of this kind of loose thinking, well, it's different for men. And I'm sure that preys on her mind when Jack's away, all of the kind of cus- customary, um, what's the word, you know, all, all, all of the traditional things that people say about sailors, Sophie's not willing to grant that any latitude at all and and good for her. And I think that's a, right. that's a 20th century woman's perspective and i think she's she's allowed that i think that's fine i'm delighted for her right and all of this dialogue as well does a nice thing bringing everybody up to speed in just a couple of chapters we've learned about jack and sophie we've learned about Stephen and how he's doing in the world and their followers so albeit without yet setting on board a ship we've had a really nice getting back up to speed time for readers who've been away for a while or even readers who are picking this up as their first book in the canon yeah, or or readers with a memory like mine who go, let's see, Diana Village, she wasn't in the last book. What was happening the last we saw her? Right. Good for, good for you, Patrick O'Brien. Well done. Yeah. But let's just take take stock of where we are with Stephen. So even though he's doing okay in his practice as a physician, even though he's doing okay as a conversation partner to the Aubrey family, things are not quite right with him. He's distracted. We hear that he left intelligence papers in a coach. He lost a patient in a surgical procedure that went wrong. He's borrowing money from Jack. And we also hear, and we're going to hear it a few times in the first few chapters of the book, he's he's using laudanum. He's using drugs as a way of maintaining any kind of relationship with, with, with happiness and with life. Right. And he's looking for refuge. Now, one of the refuges that I really appreciate that Stephen has, we haven't really talked very much about it in the first few books, is the refuge that he has in London in this inn called the Grapes in the Savoy. And Mrs. Broad and her household are sort of the mother figure for Stephen when he's ashore. And even though Stephen doesn't know how to take care of himself, Mrs. Broad and Lucy at the Grapes are able to look after him. Yeah, I love her dialogue. I love the way O'Brien characterizes her as Stephen's surrogate mother. She's this fussy, nurturing, house-proud matriarch straight out of, I don't know, Jane Austen or Trollope or somewhere. Right. There's some great dialogue. Oh, doctor, says uh, says Lucy, never looked for you this hour and more. Your supper's not even put down to the fire. Will you take a bowl of soup, sir, to stay you after your journey? A nice bowl of soup. And then the veal, the moment it's enough. This is a place where there's always food on the go and there's always something nourishing, always something warm and nurturing for Stephen. And they have these very old-fashioned attitudes that mean that they're okay with Stephen bringing in bits of corpses and anatomical specimens and and animals. The grapes were used to maturing in his ways. One more jar was neither here nor there. Indeed, it was rather more welcome than not, a hanged man's thumb being one of the luckiest things a house can hold. And in this case, there were two of them. (laughs) That's right. And he's gone back into London. He's hoping to encounter Diana Villiers, which is going to be stressful. He's got to be in touch with the Admiralty, and that's going to be stressful. But he's got two things that keep him on an even keel. The good thing is... Mrs. Broad and the grapes, and the bad thing is his laudanum habit. Yeah. Well, it's funny. They, you know, they're at the grapes. They see that he's come in. The coaches come in so much faster because they're a little worried about Stephen carrying these anatomical parts on. So they've just kind of rushed him in. And, you know, like Stephen, he hasn't eaten, he's disheveled, he hasn't done anything. And and I thought it was fabulous the way they kind of you know, he's like, no, no, I don't want anything. I'm just going back to my room where they've got his natural philosophy papers waiting for him yep. to read. They've put meals on the table. Um, you know, they're taking care of him when he first gets there. They're taking care of him the next morning. And they're just doing it kind of without calling any attention because we know what a fussy yeah. patient yeah. Stephen is. And at one point he's saying, you know, have I not already ate a chop? He asked, <laughs> seeing the chafing dish renewed. It was only a little one, sir, said Lucy, lay another upon his plate. Mrs. Broad said there's nothing like a chop for strengthening the blood, but it must be ate up while it's hot. And she sounds just like Mrs. Broad a little bit. And like Mrs. Broad, she knows he hasn't eaten on his journey. He didn't have supper or breakfast. He's laying around in his damp shirts and stuff. And it just then talks about Stephen. You can kind of 
see him coming to life. You know, he's deep in toast and marmalade. And he reads through these scientific papers that they've laid out for him. He's got this indignation. He's underlining things. And then Stephen observes, I am not dead. (sighs) Mrs. Broad and natural philosophy, the lifesavers. There you go. Too true. And it, it, it's all being stacked up for Stephen in this chapter. I mean, th- there's not a Patrick O'Brien novel without adversity and setback and, and and heartache for Stephen. So we've got three big elements of Stephen's story stacking up, damaging and stressful. He visits Diana and he finds out that she's fled once again. Of course, there's a letter left behind. Of course, she says, Stephen, how will you ever forgive me? But I'm going. He gets left with the bills to pick up and the mess to clean up. He visits the Admiralty. I I really enjoy reading, but of course it's a really grim episode. Stephen visiting the Admiralty and falling out with this stupid and clumsy Admiral Sivright, who, by the way, brings us more introduction into this idea of Louisa Wogan, the person who was sharing a household with uh, with Diana and who is going to be part of this journey to Botany Bay. And all the way along, we're being more and more explicit about him wrestling with his laudanum addiction. And I've had some chat with people online about this as well. I was not really paying attention to exactly how early in the canon we had heard that Stephen was a laudanum addict, but he really was. But now not only do we have it part of the action, he's actually beginning to to own up to it. Twice he, he gets right. the chance to make this gesture of throwing away his bottle of laudanum. Once in this chapter on the carriage to London, and in a in a little while, he's going to do the same thing at sea aboard the Leopard. And twice, having thrown the stuff away, he backtracks and obtains some more, justifying to himself as he goes. And he's got this addict's self justification down to a, down to a T. We even heard that earlier on when the, the two physicians were gathering to treat Mrs. Williams, and one of them is speaking secondhand, speaking indirectly, but I think it's pretty clear who he was talking about, and it gives us a picture of the extent of the problem. Um, The physician just known as Sir James says, I know a very able man who did so abuse it in the form of laudanum that he accustomed himself to a dose of no less than 18,000 drops a day, a decanter half the size of this one. He broke himself of the habit, but in a recent crisis of affairs, he had recourse to his balm once more. And although he was never as who should say opium drunk, I am credibly informed that he was not sober either, not for a fortnight on end. And that, oh, Dr. Maturin, how do you do? (laughs) So it's known about, other people know about it, physicians know about it, and just slowly, slowly, step by step, Stephen started to confront it. And I think he's at the beginning of a fairly long journey in in wrestling with this this addiction. Yeah, here we went from this kind of idyllic beginning with people in denial, and now we're seeing gradually this buildup over the first several chapters where... Jack has a big falling out with Ray. You know, Stephen had pointed out from his observation that it appeared that Ray and some uh, compatriots at that table were cheating Jack at cards. Jack has called them out, and now there's a potential duel in the offering. Uh, Stephen had this big blow up with the Admiral at uh, the Admiralty over learning about Mrs. Wogan and the connection with Diana. And we'll go back more into that, but that looks like it could come to a duel or maybe the Admiral's going to have him, you know, clapped in irons, you know, he's insubordinate here. So maybe catch us up a little bit in what was happening here with the Admiral with Stephen, with Diana, and this new Louisa Wogan, yeah. this new so character. We're being very, very gently introduced to the the thing that's going to drive the whole of the story, which is that there's been an investigation into some espionage involving this lady, Mrs. Louisa Wogan. Sir Joseph Blaine, fortunately, the 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 f- former retired, soon to be semi officially unretired head of uh, Admiralty Intelligence, is trying to talk Stephen into joining Jack on the Leopard, so that. Mrs. Wogan, who's going to be transported to Botany Bay in Australia, can be transported along with some other prisoners as a cover, and that Stephen might be able to use his position as an intelligence agent and surgeon aboard to find out what Mrs. Wogan really knows and to find out anything else about the the intelligence situation, especially regarding the Americans. Now, this is going to have a, a complex intelligence story for us to follow. It's going to have a complex personal story for us to follow as well, because... We hear that Diana was associated with Mrs. Wogan. 
we hear that Mrs. Wogan had a, a hapless lover, a hopeless lover, an admirer called yeah. Michael Herapath. And we hear maybe some, if there are parallels between Diana and Mrs. Wogan, maybe there are also going to be parallels between Stephen and this guy Herapath. Yeah. And this, this all results in Stephen realizing that maybe this journey could be a good journey for him as a as an intelligence agent and as a as a surgeon as well uh, could also revive the naturalist in him because we haven't heard very much about his his botanizing and his natural philosophy which we heard of course about fairly extensively in our last episode so maybe things are now beginning to converge Stephen goes to see Jack Jack manages to to convince himself that taking the leopard rather than the Ajax might be a way forward Stephen's willing to say actually maybe a voyage is worth me taking after all Jack has to overcome his scruples at the idea of transporting prisoners. And he also has to overcome his scruple as well at the idea of transporting a woman. He's, he, he lapses into very uncharitable language when he's talking to Sophie to say, a, a parcel of women to be sent into? You know very well that I've always abhorred women. Women aboard, that is to say. They cause nothing but trouble and strife. <laughs> Jack really knows how to talk to his bride here, doesn't he? I'll tell you. <laughs> He'd better get back on the ship. <laughs> so it seems like things are just about to fall into place. I think we just need one more nudge. And maybe going back to this late night conversation between Jack and Sophie, Sophie can play her ace card. Yeah. You know, we talked about it earlier, how how she kind of fears that Jack's going to fall asleep. She's afraid that, you know, Stephen might not have yet been able to talk Jack into into going on the leopard rather than waiting for the Ajax and he might hang around long enough to be involved in a duel here. So Sophie says, you know, she tells Jack that he needs to do it for Stephen, that Diana clearly has wounded him again. She mentions, as you mentioned here, all these new creatures and lands that would keep his mind from dwelling on Diana. And Jack's kind of saying, well, wait, wait a minute. If Stephen already told me he didn't want to go, if he wanted to go now, like you're saying he does, he would have told me. And and Sophie says, Stephen is far too delicate. Once he had seen that you had changed your mind about the ship, he would never mention his own concerns. But if you had heard him speak of wombats, oh, just in passing, and, and not in any sense of ill usage, it would have brought tears to your eyes. Oh, Jack, he is so very, very low. Oh, well done, Sophie. <laughs> Sophie knows how to push things along. <laughs> Sophie knows how to help these two guys to help each other. She does. And, and and Stephen has already kind of threatened Jack that if he waits for the Ajax, you know, peace might break out. There's not a moment to lose. <laughs> There's not a moment to lose. Not- I, I think it's probably worth us taking a, taking a moment here maybe to go and... Uh, yeah, we should all check on our sloth, make sure it's yeah, sober. Check, check on our sloth, <laughs> sloth and our wombats. So while Mike, go, Mike and I go and check our menageries, you enjoy this short break and we'll be right back. Welcome back. You're still listening to The Lover's Hole. You're with Ian and Mike, and we're just getting started talking about Desolation Island. So, Mike, we were on shore. We were in the Aubrey household. Stephen and Jack wrestling with the idea of a voyage. Sophie finally nudging them both to take the step. And just like that, it seems, we're all at sea. It really does. It's amazing. You kind of are flipping the page to find out what they're going to decide. And we're already, you know, well into the sea, we're in heavy weather in the Bay of Biscay. Um, certainly not a tranquil cruising ground. Mm. And uh, the nice thing, though, is we've got Pullings, we've got Bondin, we've got Babington, and we've got Killick leaving his new bride ashore. <laughs> he's he's off sailing with Captain Jack here, and 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 uh, we don't have that kind of quieter gentler Killick that we had in the last book. Killick is kind of back to his old self, it seems like, a little bit. He's Yeah, he's back to this shrewish, cantankerous, complaining self. He's got this cantankerous attitude back. Uh, early on, Killick gets called out for serving up boiled coffee. And 
we all know that Jack and Stephen prize their coffee highly and Killick's job is to keep it coming fresh and hot all day long. And being called out for this coffee, Killick's face, it says, assumed a mean, pinched expression and the thought, if people lay in their cots till all hours while others is toiling and moiling, they gets what they deserve. Very nearly found expression, but in fact the coffee had been boiled, a crime not so far short of hanging at this time of the captain's day. And Killick contented himself with a disobliging sniff and the words, there's another pot coming up. <laughs> Where is the doctor, says Jack. And just to reinforce Killick's status, says, take your thumb out of the butter. And Killick says, it works in six bells in the morning, watch your honour. And in a very low voice, it weren't in it, nowhere near. <laughs> Killick is back. <laughs> well, you know, Killick is back. And and in a way, Stephen is back. You know, yeah. we, we, you know, O'Brien gives this description about, you know, this surgeon physician role, such a familiar place. And it, it seems like a really nice place where Stephen's self-esteem can be repaired. Tell us about what they think of Stephen in the movie. Oh, yes. Dr. Maturin, it says, was much caressed in the physical world. His suggestions. Now, these are the titles of Stephen's works, and I love these. They've been written with this really delicious love of language by uh, O'Brien. His suggestions for the amelioration of sick bays. His thoughts on the prevention of the diseases most usual among seamen. And his new operation for suprapubic cystotomy. And finally, a bit of Latin. I'm going to pronounce this badly. His Tractatus de Nove Febris Ingressu were read throughout the thinking part of the Navy. So this is you know, Stephen's intellectual home, and he's he's well regarded. Absolutely, but but not all is well. So we've got you know we're off, we're sailing. It's kind of the usual cast of characters, but there are some things that may well disrupt their peace. They've got a collection of prisoners. Yeah. Uh, for transportation to Botany Bay. And this is this is the thing that was riling Jack and why he thought maybe yeah. he would not take the leopard. Yeah. He certainly didn't want to be transporting prisoners, especially this eminent prisoner, Louisa Wogan. And she's treated as a privileged gentlewoman. And she therefore uh, is kind of visible to the whole ship's company, even, God forbid, Babington oh, and, and his new, new dog, Olick, right? Um and and this Louise's admirer and perhaps would-be fiance, Michael Herapath, who it turns out has stowed away on the leopard here. And we've got that for Stephen, O'Brien writes that his whole person was shrieking for its usual dose. So Stephen obviously trying to kick the laudanum habit here, realizing after his conversation with Sir Joseph that you know, if he kept messing up, they might not need him in the service anymore. And how would he thwart Bonaparte there? And mm. real, you know, lost his patient, all these other things he's trying to do without it now, but it's having a real impact on him. It really is. Maybe you can say, fortunately, life is calling him to duty and maybe that's going to help him out. There's been a murder among the prisoners. The superintendent was attacked during the storm in the Bay of Biscay. Uh, the prisoner surgeon broke his back in a fall. So the superintendent and the prisoner surgeon are both dead. The convicts are pretty much on the point of dying of seasickness and filth and prostration. So Stephen has to attend to them. He has to attend to Louisa Wogan. And it's nice how this brings Jack and Stephen into the picture together. Jack, because as commander of the ship, he has to provide an environment for them and he has to make sure that their stores and their you know, the exercise are provided for. And it brings Stephen in because he gets to care for them as the surgeon. And also he can begin to act on the mission that Joseph Blaine gave him, which is to find his way into the conversational paths of Louisa Wogan and see what he can learn. And it's it's really neat to see both of these guys, both of our heroes back in their element. You know, Jack, who didn't want to have anything to do with the prisoners and Stephen had to convince him, well, don't worry about it. It won't be any of your concern. Yeah. There's a supervisor. They have their own staff, their own stores and everything. Well, now all that's gone. But Jack's thinking, you know, they're on my ship. And so I have to take care of them. Steve in the same way. They had their own surgeon. But now they're surgeonless and they're patients. They need care. Just like Stephen, who's always willing to go aboard even an enemy ship with a yellow jack, you know, I've got to take care of them. So, you know, we, we love them for it. Yeah, okay. And and hopefully that's going to help Stephen 
set himself on his feet. And certainly this puzzle of who is Louisa Wogan and what's what's her role and what sort of an intelligence source could she be is going to occupy his attention. The other thing that I think is going to occupy his attention, as always in the opening third of a Patrick O'Brien book, is the, the gunroom dinner. Stephen and Jack get to sit down with their new fellows aboard ship and we see some familiar Patrick O'Brien archetypes there. There's a jolly purser, for some reason. Pursers are always jolly. There's a dark-haired Scottish marine officer. For some reason, lots of marines are Scottish. I, I think that was a real thing, by the way. I think um, Scotland was a big recruiting ground for the officer class in the marines, but it's now a, a an established thing that if there's a marine officer, he might well be called McPherson, as this one is. There are stupid, right. upper-class, oyster-faced marine subalterns, junior officers, who are no good for man or beast. And we've got Babington and Pullings and their characters and their interests are really familiar and welcome around the table. By the way, Babington's a lieutenant. I can't remember when Babington got his step. It must have been recently. But anyway, Pullings has been a lieutenant for a while. Pullings is senior enough that he can be promoted to, he'll be appointed first lieutenant ahead of the other lieutenants, which is going to cause us a problem later on, I think. Right. By by the way, um, I want to say thank you to some of our followers on the internet. I've been calling... Pullings's accent, East Anglian. And I don't know why, something about the the way it was written up and the way it was enunciated. I could have sworn that Babington was from Suffolk. But anyway, thank you very much, Adam Quinnan, who visited our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash lubbers hole, pointed out exactly correctly that Pullings is from Hampshire. Nice. And there's reference to that much earlier on in the story. I should have been paying attention. Thank you, Adam. You're absolutely right. I still think it's a little bit sad that... We're going to lose, as Pullings gets more senior and more of a lieutenant and more of an established figure, O'Brien's going to be writing his accent and his dialect less and less. And I really miss that. Anyway, thank you to Adam. Thank you, by the way, also to all of you who've sent in reviews on Apple Podcasts and in other platforms. We really appreciate the reviews. Do please keep going with those written reviews. Do please keep telling us what you like about the show and what we can do more of. Uh, We had a great comment lately from somebody who said, can you give us chapters in the episode description so that we can see where we're following along? I'm going to get onto that, see if we can add that to the episode description so you know where we're going to be up to so we can avoid spoilers. And thank you for all your work that you're doing to join us on Twitter. On Twitter, we are um, at Whole Lubbers on the Facebook page, as I said, and Mike and I both post regularly on the Facebook Aubrey Matcherin Appreciation Society. We both post from time to time on the subreddit for the Aubrey Matcherin subreddit. And we're also from time to time to be found on the gun room on the list server, which is probably the, the oldest and noblest of the internet collections of uh, of O'Brien fans. So thank you to all of you for your feedback. Please keep listening. Please keep sharing. Please keep telling telling us what you like about the show. So we've got Stephen and Pooling sharing a conversation that offers a little foreshadowing of what might be ahead. The story of... Is, wager. Is wager. Wagger. The Wager. Yeah. A wager. Okay. I was starting to get first, and I thought it couldn't be that. Yeah. The story of Wager and her voyage under the command of Lord Byron. Uh, O'Brien says, the famous one. Now, who do we think Lord Byron the well, famous there's a, there's one? There's a little is, teasing joke here about two different perspectives. To a sailor in 1800 and something, the famous Lord Byron is Admiral Byron. Admiral Byron in the late 18th century who did this famous journey that was actually written about by O'Brien in one of his pre-Aubrey sailing novels, The Unknown Shore. And Pullings for sure knows about the famous Admiral Jack Byron. Pullings tells a story about how there had been these shipwrecks. And Pullings' own grandfather used to tell stories about these shipwrecks and said, you never knew a man till you'd seen him in a wreck. It still amazed him, said Pullings' granddad, to see some hold fast, but for the most part run all to pieces discipline going by the board the crew get beastly drunk refuse orders pillage cabins blackguard their officers jump into boats and swarm about like a parcel of frightened landsmen and this is disturbing stuff this is pullings harking forward to a challenge that maybe is coming for jack and the leopard once the captain's authority is gone says pullings that's the law nothing will get it out of their stupid heads so we get the chance to hear the story about admiral jack byron stephen 
says, oh, you mean the famous Byron? And of course, Stephen's referring to the poet, Lord Byron. Right. And and all this because there's a Byron on the ship and they're wondering, is our Byron related to yeah. the famous And I think we, we're invited to believe that the midshipman on the ship is the, a great son, grandson or great nephew, I think, of the famous one, the Admiral. And yeah. Stephen's pointing out there's actually a family connection. Right? Yeah. The famous Admiral, Jack Byron, who did the, the voyage in the wager, was I think, Mike, the grandfather of the poet Lord George Byron, who people know about from poetry and romantic poetry, a contemporary of Keats and Shelley and Wordsworth. We might tweet out, maybe we should, maybe we should tweet out some, uh, some Byron poetry that Stephen might have known and liked, because that's the, that's the one who's making the connection. Oh, that's a great idea. And Stephen knows nothing about unrequited <laughs> love. So I'm sure the two would be very simpatico, right? Indeed, indeed. Speaking of Stephen, we, we're back here. We've got this dinner beforehand. Stephen had kind of come up after Jack about how he really needed a lot more license with his patients, yeah. these convict patients. And and Jack had reservations about that. Stephen really snapped at him hard. And, and after dinner, Stephen apologizes. And he offers a similar confession mm-hmm. to one earlier in the book he'd given to Sir Joseph when he had kind of lost it with the Admiral. He said, to Jack, I'm abandoning a course of physic, an injudicious course, perhaps. The effect is not unlike that produced in your confirmed tobacco smoker when his pipe is taken from him. And sometimes, alas, I yield to fits of petulance. And so on the one hand, we're all kind of warm and fuzzy thinking, okay, Stephen's got a little insight here. He realizes what the opium, what the laudanum has been doing to him. But we also, as the readers, realize that just before this, Stephen had come upon the stores of the convict's physician, their surgeon, and found a substantial amount of laudanum. Yeah, temptation in a bottle. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to keep most of that for myself. I'll keep a little bit just in case the patients need it, but I'm going to keep it. So he knows the effect it has on him. He knows the effect that withdrawing is having on him and his temper and he's also kind of keeping it close at hand. He's wrestling with it. I suppose we can, as as people who've come to love Stephen as a character, we can look at this and think, well, at least he's given it a name and he knows about it. Right. But he's twice now had the chance to completely turn his back. And he's twice now taken a fresh opportunity to to replenish his stores. So I think this is a... This is a wrestling match that's going to go on with Stephen for for quite some time to come. Yeah, that monkey is never far from his back. No. And by the way, just at this point in the story, we get a little mention as Stephen is bemoaning the relatively poor clinical skills of the of the parson that who's who's acting as his uh, assistant surgeon. The first sign of an unknown disease among the prisoners, and I think he says our diagnosis must attend the event. So there's something sickening for the prisoners, and we're not sure what it is. But meanwhile. Meanwhile, Stephen's attention also gets to turn to Louisa Wogan. And she, in turn, is I think is turning a few heads on the deck when she finally takes the air. Yeah, Stephen, Stephen gets to walk her out, walk her around the deck. You know, Jack's given in to that. He thinks it's a good idea. At first, he was afraid. You know, he says that, you know, she was rather violent when she was arrested, Stephen says. And I'm sure she has a whole yeah. brace of pistols <laughs> on her. But Jack's her gun. He could walk her out. But I think, you know, perhaps nobody quite had the idea of the impact that this was going to have. Although so many people have said how much Louisa looks like Diana, mm. and we know the kind of impact that Diana has on men. Ian, can you share with us a little bit about what happens as as Louisa Wogan goes down the deck here? Oh, it's great. Well, there's Turnbull, the officer of the watch on the deck, and critically, Lieutenant Babington. And we all know Babington has a bit of an eye for the ladies, even though he's not the tallest and most glamorous looking fella in the world. Um, he's an insatiable appetite for the uh, for the fairer sex. So it says, Babington and Turnbull were talking by the starboard hansers. Three midshipmen were busy with their sextants on the old lopsided moon. The talk instantly stopped. The sextants drooped. Babington straightened up to his full five foot six and darted an old clay pipe into his pocket. <laughs> the leopard came up half a point. Her head cells gave a hint of a shiver and Turnbull roared, Full and by there! God damn your eyes! Quartermaster, mind your con! Come no near! Everybody, even the quartermaster meant to be steering the ship, has had their head turned by Louisa Wogan. Yeah. And I think somewhere, here's, here's a point of debate for us. Shortly afterwards, we get this episode where as Mrs. Wogan is 
clearly not completely at ease and has clearly been quite upset and confined and bewildered. Stephen brings her on deck and the fresh air is having its effect and he starts to feed her and she started to come out of her shell a little bit. And a man comes onto the quarter deck, comes toward the quarter deck and is pretty brutally punished, is started and beaten by the bosun's mate for disobedience. And Stephen notes that at that moment, Mrs. Wogan seemed to be disguising a strong, pleasurable emotion. Now, I don't know, Mike, I suspect that the person who came on deck, who was beaten for approaching the quarter deck, might have been Herapath. Herapath, the stowaway, who in the meantime has been allotted a place before the mast with the seaman being looked after by Bondon and his mates in the mess. I think that might have been Herapath. But I don't know. Or maybe it was just Louisa Wogan expressing pleasure because she sees that there's discipline aboard the ship. It's a, it's a great question. It's funny. When I was reading it, I I, I love you know, thinking about Herapath and that could absolutely be it. I was thinking that Stephen was trying to assess her as yeah. an intelligence officer and find out that she seems like this gentlewoman and you know, all courteous and everything. At the same time, Jack had observed earlier one of the reasons Jack was taken by her in in addition to the fact that she looks like Diana, is that after this big storm, when everybody is kind of all upside down, he gets to her room for the first time and it's mm. neat as a pin and she's not worried about anything. And there's been a rat in there and she asked them to remove the dead rat that she's, you know, she's kind of taken apart with her, with her boot heel. Uh, so I was kind of thinking, is this, us getting a little insight into Louisa Wogan that says she seems like this, you know, smaller than Diana, lovely gentlewoman, but maybe oh, okay. there's a different side. I wonder how they listen. So yeah, Louisa Wogan, pleased to see Herapath or pleased to see that she can indulge her slightly cold hearted, slightly commanding, slightly vicious side. Who knows? It's funny. We get, you know, we got this Louisa Wogan, which we, you know, kind of getting, perhaps multiple sides of and we're and we're really wondering about we know she's this agent and and we know that when you know when they came to take her she she kind of went out pistols blazing but we also have this we mentioned a little bit earlier Mr. Grant yeah. the second lieutenant and when Stephen goes to see Jack again um Jack's busy and Jack gives Stephen a book about Grant's former expedition to New Holland in this parts of the world and Stephen wonders out loud, you know, wow, it sounds like he did great things. He's in this little brig. He did all this exploring. Why wasn't he promoted? And Jack tells him that Grant has really gotten on the wrong side of civilians in, in Australia, on the wrong side of civilians in England, that he also had done something at some point to be put at the very bottom of the lieutenant's list. And therefore... Pullings was now ranked above him, even though Grant was many, many, many years his senior in, in terms of it probably should be a yeah. post captain yeah. by now, one would think. So it's a bit of a head scratcher for, for Jack and for Stephen, I think. How is Grant going to fit in? How is Mrs. Wogan going to find a place on board the ship without completely distracting and turning the heads of all the officers? Thank goodness that Stephen and Jack have still got toasted cheese and Corelli in C major. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You know, with Corelli and C major, we then move into to chapter four here. And that sounds so familiar. And in fact, what O'Brien picks up next is very familiar. You've spoken of it many times before, Ian. We really start yeah. to hear about the ship's routine and about how people are you know, even some of the folks that are new to the sea are breaking in, how we know what's going to happen because of what day it is. And they're making good time. They're sailing fair and fast. They have, surprise, surprise, lots of gunnery practice. And a little unusual, they actually have to rig the cat. There's been a theft on board. But also, yeah. uh, Harapath uh, was absent from his duty at one point and is set to be punished. And Harapath watches this man before him take like nine lashes. And, and it's pretty scary. I think it's, uh, Harapath never seen anything like it. And his messmates have kind of been setting him up as as they <laughs> the sailors can so well do to the lovers, telling him that, you know, for his offense, probably going to be at least 500 <laughs> lashes. <laughs> sure enough, Harapath goes up in front of Jack. Jack realizes that he's brand new 
you know, he hears from his officers that, you know, Harapeth really has, uh, you know, he's, he's just new to this, just seems to have missed out a little bit. And Jack leaves them off with kind of a warning, which seems to turn Harapeth around a little bit. And he decides, you know what, I'm going to do a better job. He finds his the person that he reports to and says, you know, I want to learn a little bit more about going up into the top. A person is assigned and Harapeth goes, boom, straight up the rigging, right up. Yeah. But he's new to it and um, doesn't really know. And wow, with a, a little shift, here he is off man overboard, hits himself on the way down, is off into the water. And luckily, our hero, Jack Aubrey, happened to be in a boat, kind of going around to take a look at the leopard. And he dives in and was also about to go for a swim. So he's, he's, he's buck naked. <laughs> he dives in and uh, pulls Harapeth out, you know, sends Harapeth up the side on a rope. He scrambles out up the side, jumps on board to, to commend him to Stephen's care, but realizes looking up that he is buck naked and he's standing right in front of <laughs> Mrs. Wogan. <laughs> Brian tells us that Jack blushes like a boy, then grabs pullings, hides behind him and dashes down a convenient ladder in a hatch close by. So lots of things happening all at once here. I mean, the Heripath story has been that Herapath has to go through all kinds of punishment. I think we're told in gory detail how he's going to have to cope with, if he's going to sell before the mass, he's going to have to not not be too nice about his food. He's going to have to cope with the rough habits of sailors. He's going to have to cope with lack of sleep. He's now got to learn to obey command and he witnesses the physical punishment that's waiting him if he disobeys. And now he's got to learn his craft to be high up in the rigging, only to be pulled out of the sea when he misses his footing and falls. So this is Heropath, in a way, in just a few paragraphs, is going through this whole set of challenges to try to get to his woman. <laughs> and maybe we're meant to think of that as a parallel right. to all the challenges that Stephen keeps putting himself through to get to his woman, but arguably much bigger and much more severe and much more personal challenges, much more drawn out. Too true. Too true. But the other person who is perhaps not feeling entirely, entirely at ease is Grant. So Jack has talked to us already about how Grant was somehow putting himself out of favor and had fallen down the lieutenant's list so first of all we get we get jack writing home to sophie about grant and saying how he's he's an older lieutenant he's a very fine navigator but seems to think that his knowledge of the waters set him above subordination he's too old and too high to be a second lieutenant oh if only the admiralty had given me someone else and then by the way we get this great aubreyism if only pigs had wings we should have no need for tinker's hands which is a which is a mashup of the old ifs and ands proverb about pots and pans and tinkers hands and pigs had wings they could fly. So great work. First class, weapons grade Aubreyism. There we like that. Yeah. <laughs> but then Stephen gets talking to Grant and realizes that Grant is a profoundly embittered man. And in Stephen's diary we get this description of Grant. How he resents Jack Aubrey. He's seen no action. And whereas Jack's body is pierced and crisscrossed, McPherson's pointed this out and cried in a passion. Twas all luck. Twas all luck. No man was wounded from choice. A man might have all the courage and conduct in the world and no wound to show for it. And Grant puts this lack of promotion down to her intrigues in Whitehall and jealousy and his own obscure birth. Had my father, says Grant, been a country gentleman, a general and a member of parliament, I might have been a post-captain 15 years ago and more. Clearly, clearly a, a fling at Jack. It's clearly a fling at Jack. And also shades of Lord Clonfort, right back in the Mauritius command. Shades also of James Dillon in Master and Commander. This resentment that Jack, for all of his goodwill and his generosity and his undeniable personal virtue is the subject of jealousy and resentment by people who haven't had quite the same chances as him and i wonder how much trouble grant's going to cause in the story with his resentment of jack boy it sure it sure looks like it's leading that way doesn't it yeah yeah i think it is i think it is well let's not get too far ahead of ourselves there are other kinds of trouble brewing aboard the leopard as well first of all heripath is finding more discreet ways to try and get close to mrs wogan stephen catches him talking to Mrs. Wogan through a hole in the door. And it's great to see this cat and mouse game going on between Stephen and Louisa Wogan. He's already sounded her out a couple of times. He's mentioned Diana Villiers' name to see if there's any connection, to see if Louisa Wogan might already be aware of Stephen's identity and his connection to Diana Villiers. That doesn't seem to be the case. So meanwhile, he's sizing her up 
as an intelligent agent. And I think Stephen's going to start manipulating Herapath right. to see if he can uh, he can smoke out what's really going on with Louisa Wogan. And, and Stephen's starting to kind of ingratiate himself, to set himself up as somebody who would certainly lean her way, if you will. Yeah. You know, tells her about being Irish and wanting his country independent, that he doesn't like planting colonies. He brings up the, you know, the leopard, the very ship we're on that, uh, you know, the leopard in the past had attacked uh, an American, a neutral American frigate, the Chesapeake, some years ago, killed some of her people and took American seamen of Irish origin out of the leopard. Um, And you know, Stephen tells her that he, you know, he thinks that would have been justification for war. And as Stephen tells her all this, you know, he says that, you know, I believe she was on the point of breaking out into an indiscretion. Stephen's starting to sense that, you know, while she's an intelligent agent and she might have a great way with men and, and she had gotten to some people high up into the Admiralty, she probably isn't a great, at least in Stephen's mind, intelligent agent not as good about being discreet, not as good about hiding her emotions. And he's wondering, you know, how much he can get from her. Certainly, you know, maybe the name of who she was reporting to in England, which would be helpful maybe to find out, is she just working for the Americans? Clearly she's got connections there. Could she possibly have been working for the French? Mm. So thinking about this as his assignment, but he's also taking it a bit more personally too, right? Yeah, he is. He, he can tell that he's a bit attracted to Mrs. Wogan. He, he even writes about this very dispassionately in his diary. Deep stirrings within my own person are by no means absent. A consequence of my abstention, opium being an, an anti-aphrodisiac. So he's kind of justifying weird backward justification. The only reason that I'm horning after Mrs. Wogan is that I'm being a good boy and not taking my opium. Mm, I think he's justifying one with another there. Well, does not, therefore does not duty require that I should resume. (laughs) Oh, come on, Stephen. (laughs) Right. In moderation as part of a process of inquiry. Hmm. Very devilish. And he's, he thinks he detects a certain liking. He says, I flatter myself. There's a certain real liking for me to feel that she would not put too much constraint upon herself in admitting me to her bed. For it seems to me that she's a woman for whom these sports are of no great consequence with such women. Sexual fidelity has as little meaning as the act has significance. One might as well require them to drink wine with one man alone. So he's, he's pretty down on her virtue and he's kind of congratulating himself a little bit that maybe, maybe he can play the Matahari a bit himself. Yeah. So his relationship is certainly a direct contact here. Jax saved Harapath's life. Jax let Harapath off without punishment. Yeah. Certainly Jack and Stephen have this ability to get closer to Harapath. And Mrs. Wogan then tips her hand as she and Stephen are walking one day. She starts to let him know about her interest in Herapath. She acts like she doesn't know him. Of course, Stephen already knows that she knows him, but she refers to him as the young man that the captain saved. And she's asking Stephen more about him and is he okay? And Mm -hmm. then, you know, continues to do this. Now, there's a little bit of trouble brewing around Mrs. Wogan. Jack is completely incensed because as, as she's walking around the deck, more and more guys are interested to the point that people are trying to break in. People are trying to have keys made. This sounds like, you know, some bad B movie here. Yeah, drilling <laughs> holes in the cabin walls. <laughs> in, you know, the junior high locker rooms or something. Um, and, and Jack pretty much goes ballistic here. He calls in the head yeah. of the Marines. He calls in person after person, in, including uh, our, our, our dear friend Babington. You know, and dresses them down and really threatens to, you know, he's, he's, he's going to have a lot of people punished physically here, but threatens to court-martial anybody who disobeys his orders going forward. So he's, he's really worried about the stable society that he cherishes aboard ship is being threatened by her presence and by the loutish behavior of all these other officers trying to get to her. Maybe Jack kind of realizes that he he values the simplicity and the directness and the uncomplicated pattern of life at sea and all of this messy interpersonal desires and lusts. It's it's getting in the way. As he knew it would. <laughs> As he said all along, parcel of women aboard, more trouble than they're worth. And I think Jack is also uneasy when Stephen confides that 
he, Stephen, is watching Mrs. Wogan. Again, the simplicity of life at sea is a bit threatened. Jack's feeling bad that he's being managed or that he's being played somehow. He's part of some psychodrama that Stephen's observing. And until Stephen apologizes for the for the deviousness and the underhand behavior, which they managed to get past. Right. You know, we're seeing that Jack would really very much appreciate it if everybody would just go away and leave him to sail his ship. Take away the prisoners, take away Mrs. Wogan, take away the devious part of Stephen's character, and let us just have our sailing voyage and let us have our music and our toasted cheese. Right. And get to Australia and carry out our mission. <laughs> But even that's not going to be straightforward. We have a we have a big dinner where Grant once again puts himself at odds with Jack. Uh, Pullings very diplomatically points out, you know, that even though Grant has crossed the equator twice in his career, Jack has crossed the equator twenty times. So if there's going to be a discussion on where best to cross the equator, perhaps Jack is well equipped. Right. And then as as we're sitting there at dinner, Stephen is called out. And learns that this sickness that's been kind of floating around, they've seen symptoms, they haven't been able to put their finger on it, finally has now manifested itself, albeit in an unusual way for this thing. And it turns out to be a very virulent jail fever. There are now three patients who move quickly into comas and die. And this thing threatens to break out widespread across the ship. So a whole new threat. This, this seems a little bit like planet Earth in March 2020, doesn't it, Mike? Boy, too much so. Even yeah. in 2020, if you're, yeah, if you're on this side of the Atlantic where I am. Right. So we have jail fever aboard the ship. And we have, of course, no way of segregating people one from another. We have the likelihood that this infection is going to pass straight through the ship. And all of the complexities that Jack is kicking against the complexity of Mrs. Wogan distracting his officers, the complexity of Stephen trying to do his intelligence maneuverings to find out what's going on with Mrs. Wogan. We've got Herapath the stowaway. We've got Grant trying to find his justification and his pride and his status back despite being a second lieutenant. There's a lot still to happen in this story, isn't there, Mike? A lot still to happen. Maybe. Maybe we're going to turn a few more pages of Desolation Island next time. So what do you say, Mike, to a bit more Patrick O'Brien? Oh, with all my heart. I think on this end it'll be rather dull, but... Oh, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, that'll...